0: At this point, at this point in the service, children in kindergarten through second grade are welcome to primary church. It's going to be good today. You might want to stay. Just kidding. Anyhow, we're looking at Luke chapter 12. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn your Bible to Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13 or so. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in your order of worship. There's the text that we're looking at. You can use your phone or you can use any other device you'd like. So. I say to you, hear the word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God came to him. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray um, that as we sort of get into an, uh, what might be a meddlesome topic for some folks, that you would actually make the gospel clear, that you would make a, a, your, what you would have us know clear. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. I'm going to start things a little differently than I did last service. I'm going to start with a question, and the question is, is this. Ask yourself this question, if, if I had more money, I'd spend it on fill in the blank. If I had more money, I would spend it on X, you know, you, you think about it. And so what I'm getting ready to tell you is an absolutely true story, and I wonder if it happens to anyone but preachers when they have to talk about money. So Monday afternoon I do most of my sermon preparation and, and I come up with these kind of questions and I think, out uh, which one should I use and what I open. And so the question is, if I had more money, I'd spend it on X. Tuesday afternoon, Judy and I received a windfall check in the mail that while it wouldn't have been life changing, it certainly had us thinking huge family vacations. I mean, we had Cabo, we, we, we had any place in the world we wanted to go, we were just debating. It was a glorious time. And then on Wednesday, I remembered that I called the roof guy to come out. (laughs) Remember the storm we had a couple weeks ago? uh, I came outside one morning, there was some tar paper on the ground, and I thought, well, I better call the roof guy to look at this thing. Thursday, the roof guy gave me his estimate, which was exactly $25 less than the huge check we'd gotten on Tuesday. Now, what's even worse is someone in the last service, I told that story, and someone said, wow, that was disappointing. And I said, yeah, man. I was like, we're all ready to go, and suddenly i got to pay for the roof with this money. And he said, what do you suppose if the events would have been opposite? I said, what do you mean? He said, what do you think, would? how would you have felt if you've gotten the bill for the roof first and then gotten the check? Well, then I, all oh, praise the Lord, he provided for me. Instead of saying, not only did he provide for me, but he was even thinking ahead of what I needed. Well, praise the Lord. In, in other words, why with one scenario am I sort of disappointed in the other scenario I would be praising? And the answer is pretty simple. Is I think, Judy and I, we got a touch of dragon sickness. Right? Are you familiar with dragon sickness? If you know anything about dragons, you should be, right? Mostly what you know about dragons is that they breathe fire and that they can fly. But really what sort of makes up the character of a dragon is that they're greedy. Simple as that. They're greedy. And in all literature, they're greedy. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, greedy dragons. If you've seen The Hobbit, Smog? remember when, when Bilbo uh, sneaks in to see him? He's, lit, he's, he's sleeping under just mounds and mounds of treasure and gold. And how much does a dragon need? Just a little bit more. Always just a little bit more. And when they finally get rid of, of smog and the, the dwarves come to take over the rightful possession of, of the lonely mountain, their home under the mountain. Do you remember what happens to Thorin Oakenshield? Have you seen The Hobbit? He almost shuts down because he is overcome with dragon sickness. He doesn't. he, He has so much stuff that he doesn't know what to do with it, and yet he can't help but think of wanting more. and And it's his character begins to be twisted. As we look at today's text, it's really at the end of the day, it's about dragon sickness. And it's about a remedy for dragon sickness. It's, about, it's really a warning also of about dragon sickness. And it's interesting because if you think of the context that we're talking about here, um, Jesus has been talking about persecution. He's been talking about hell. And then suddenly, it seems out of nowhere, we're talking about money. We'll explain that in a minute. I wanna, I wanna, basically, we're going to look this morning... Had three things. We're going to look at Jesus' presuppositions about money. It's helpful to understand the, the text that we're looking at. If you understand what Jesus thought about money, generally speaking. We're going to look at a, a selfish request. And by the way, that's a nice way to put it. The guy who, who interrupted Jesus, he actually is making a demand. He doesn't say, can, you, can I ask you a question? He says, I, t- here's what I'm telling you to do. And which, by the way, Jesus is batting a 1000 For instances, when people come up and tell him to do something and he doesn't do it. So that's where we're going with that. And then finally, you're going to hear a sobering story, which most people call the parable of the rich fool. So what are Jesus' presuppositions about money? There's at least three of them. And the first presupposition is just this, that God owns everything. In other words, God is the owner and the creator of everything. And there's lots of places in the Old Testament where that's said explicitly. Psalm 24, one, I believe, is one place where God says the earth is mine and all that's in it. So David says that when they dedicate uh, things that that God owns everything. All that is yours. Everything is yours. And so if God owns everything, what does that make us? What makes us stewards or managers of God's things? So God owns everything is one of Jesus' presupposition. We're stewards of that. So in other words, God gives each of us whatever amount he gives us, and we're responsible to use that in a certain way. The second presupposition that Jesus would have had is that the poor will always be among us. He said that a number of times in the New Testament. But also if you go back to the, to the Deuteronomy, the law, Notice what it said, uh, Moses wrote in uh, Deuteronomy 15:11. He says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Okay? So all the way back in, the, in the, the, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, he said there will always be poor. And therefore, I always want you to have an open hand. I want you to constantly keep your eye out for those who have some need, those who need to be taken care of. It's almost as if they're always going to be there in order to test the hearts of all of us who aren't poor. But that's one of Jesus' presuppositions, I think. And then the final presupposition is that money in and of itself isn't bad. Money's a tool. What is bad is either how you use money or how you covet money, how you, how you sort of get dragon sickness and want more and more and you want to use more and more, and so if you ask the question, why would Jesus pivot from talking about hell to talking about money? I mean, the, this man asks him a question about money, but Jesus could have said, "You know, I'm talking about hell, son. Let's we'll talk about more important things later or less important things later." I think the reason that Jesus just runs with this is because when he thinks about money, money can be just as dangerous to our faith as persecution can be. Money can be just as big a test to our faith as persecution can be. In fact, so remember last week Jesus said, don't don't fear humans who who can kill the body, but fear God who can kill you and cast you into hell. In other words, in the face of persecution, you need to think about not failing. And in the same breath, it's like, well, the guy brings up money and he said, well, let's talk about something else that can ruin your faith. Let's talk about money. If you were here a couple years ago, I preached the book of Revelation. If you remember chapter 17, there was a beast and there was a harlot. If you, you, I, don't, I don't expect any of you to remember it. It was an awesome sermon, trust me. Um, but if you remember, the beast is basically the government or, or, or the government with, with religious influence. And the beast is constantly trying to scare Christians off the narrow path. Right, Jesus says the way is narrow to pursue eternal life. And the beast is trying to scare people off of the path. And the harlot, the whore of Babylon, she's constantly trying to lure people off the path. She's the money, mark, the marketplace, capitalism. So one one place is trying to scare you off. The other is trying to lure you off. And Jesus would say, just keep your eye on me. And so that is basically this presupposition that money isn't bad but what you do with it or what you let money do to you can be bad in fact it can be horrible it can have eternal consequences we'll see that today so with all that said let's look at first his selfish request in verse 13 so someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me and so just looking at that verse we can tell an awful lot about the man who asks the question i mean we can tell an incredible amount about the man who asked the question the first thing we realize about the man he actually doesn't ask he says teacher tell my brother so he's come to jesus with with a demand what do we know about the brother first of all we know that he is incredibly selfish and self-centered how do we know that just from his question well if you think about it jesus has been talking about hell Jesus has been preaching about uh, not giving in to the face of persecution and don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill your soul and cast you into hell. And apparently this guy has been sitting there and he hasn't heard a word that Jesus has said. He just can't wait until there's a break in the conversation so that he can insert what he wants to talk about. And what he wants to talk about is getting his portion of the inheritance, which that also tells us something about the guy because he's probably a younger brother. Because if a father, in, at, at least in Palestine, had died, the father would have died, everything would have gone to the elder brother. And even if something was left to the younger brother, the elder brother would have been the administrator of that. And so at some level, there's, there's a younger brother who wants his portion of the pie and he wants the, it from the elder brother to do with what he wants. Which that's sort of going to sound like Luke chapter 15 we'll look at you know in a few months probably. So he, he's he's not in good relationship probably with his elder brother and he's willing to just interrupt jesus in the face of all of this kind of crowd and also we know i think that he is greedy just by the way that jesus addresses him you see jesus his presupposition is i i have what what's mine what's mine is coming to me and jesus presupposition is more like a question let's talk about who owns it rather than what's you what is coming to you notice what he says says um, someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me and then verse 14 but jesus said to him man who made me judge or arbitrator over you and and i thought this is a very rough way like so in in some ways jesus is basically telling this guy do i look like judge judy to you but I, i i'm doing that on purpose because jesus really is speaking very roughly to the man he doesn't say friend catch me on the, you know, catch me on the download, catch me somewhere else, or let's talk offline later. He doesn't call him a friend, and he doesn't even say, sir, this is the wrong time to talk about this. He says, man, it's a, it's a very rough form of a Man, who made you, who, what makes you think that I'm judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, Jesus is basically telling him, you know, I've got bigger fish to fry. I didn't come to, to earth in order to, to arbitrate over a small claims court. That's not why I'm here. I came to seek and save the lost, he'll eventually tell us. And so, what's he say next? Jesus actually begins to, to basically school this guy, but he tells the whole, he's, the whole congregation gets to listen that he's talking to. And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the word there in Greek is plenexia. Which isn't exactly greed, but I wrote the definition. It says the acquisitive attitude of always wanting more beyond what we even need. So the man is asked a question, and Jesus doesn't immediately... He doesn't sort of spank him directly, but he tells the crowd, beware of covetousness. Beware of dragon sickness. Beware of always wanting more. Why? Because your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. That your life doesn't. In in other words, the the stuff that you have is not what makes you up, and the stuff that makes you uh, that that you have isn't life at all. I remember when I became a Christian and when I was 18 years old, someone wrote in the front of a Bible they gave me, "This is eternal life to know God and His Son Jesus Christ." So life is different than just the stuff we can collect, and we're going to find out why that is because Jesus tells a parable. And so he has this sort of selfish demand where this, this man sort of interrupts and Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them all about possessions. And so what is the, the sobering story we have here? You're going to notice, I'm going to call the man Mr. Mr. Barnes. Right? It's easier to call someone a name than just to say the rich fool over and over again. But notice the parable Jesus says. And he told them this parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops?" and he said I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store my grain my goods I will say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink and be merry but God said to him fool this night your soul is required of you and all things that you have prepared whose will they be so when you think of this sobering story you learn a lot just like you could learn a lot about the other man you learn a lot about this man as well there's a sense in which this this Mr. Barnes in our text, there's a sense in which um, if the template through which we were looking at this story was American capitalism. At the end of the story, assuming God didn't come in and take his life, at the end of the story, he would have been gotten phone calls from CNBC, from Fox, from MSNBC. Everyone would want to interview him as to how he had achieved such great success. He would have been on boards of corporations because he, he actually, according to the, the American form of capitalism, we understand it, he is a great businessman. If life is about making money and acquiring possessions, this guy has nailed it. How do we know that? Notice what he says. So the first thing we notice about the man in verse 16, it says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So two things, even in that verse. One is in a, in a society where most people were sort of subsistence farmers. What i mean by that is you know we talk about you know living paycheck to paycheck we're talking about most people would have lived day to day how much bread they could have made each day how much based on how much food they could have brought in and he in the middle of this very poor society is a rich man already so he's already wealthy and this man who is already wealthy has produced his his fields have produced a surplus in other words, he has not worked any harder for it. It is a, a gift of grace. But suddenly he now finds himself in the position of having all this extra stuff. He's wealthy and he has a bunch of extra stuff. What should I do with it? That's the question he asks himself. Notice the problem, verse 17. He says, and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink and be merry so his problem his problem is that he doesn't have enough room to store all this stuff but you also begin to, to to sense the sort of where where he's going south because did you notice in this this parable there are 54 words in the parable and 18 of the words in this out of the 54 are are uh, first person pronouns i me my some version of that even when he talks about his stuff, did you notice what he says? He says, I will do this. I will take down my barns and build larger store for all my grain, my goods, my soul. He clearly views himself as an owner of things, not as a steward of things. And his problem is I need to build larger barns in order to store this. Now, why build larger barns and not just build more barns? It's actually pretty genius, right? If you're out to make money, he's a very smart guy. If he built more barns, that would take up more space, which would take away from the available land. He had to grow more crops. So ultimately, he might lose money by building more barns. But by building bigger barns, in other words, by building up instead of building out, he could actually have more space to store and he'd still have just as much land in order to farm. But also by storing the grain, rather than putting it on the market, he can actually just hold it until there's, there, there's a need in the market. In other words, he, had the, he could have had this surplus and he could have just dumped it on the, on the market and everyone would have benefited. The poor people would have been able to buy cheap grain, all of this kind of stuff. But he's smart enough to know that if I store it, I can wait until there, there is a shortage in the market. And when there's a shortage in the market and I release it, not only will I have a surplus, but I can make more money on it than I would have otherwise made. He is a good businessman if being a good businessman is what life is all about. But being a good businessman probably isn't the best thing for life to be out. Notice when he says, what is his solution is to build bigger uh, store places. In verse 19, he says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So his goal in life is nothing more, nothing less than personal comfort. More and more. In other words... We know he's wealthy in the society, so he's already got enough to eat. He's probably got a nice place to live. He's probably got a decent house. He's probably got a 48-inch TV. You know, not, he didn't have the 80-inch yet. Maybe he's got what he needs for sure and more. But he says now that I have all this extra, now I don't have to do anything. Now I can just relax, eat, sleep, and be merry. Now it's helpful to ask a few questions here you know i've told you before we, i used to work with psychiatrists and if you work with kids that have adhd um one of the questions that i would tell the, the worst question you can ask a kid with adhd is what were you thinking trust me i know that my wife learned that a long time what were you thinking i wasn't thinking about anything that's the better question in other words instead of asking what were you thinking the better question is asking what were you not thinking And in this case, for Mr. Barnes, it's probably better to ask, what was Mr. Barnes not thinking about? We know what he was thinking about. He was thinking about my Barnes, my soul, my, 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 my. What was he not thinking about? What he was not thinking about, among other things. He wasn't thinking about his neighbors. He wasn't thinking about the poor. I mean, just by almost definition, the people who lived around him in Jesus' day in Palestine would have been poor. And it it amazed me as I was thinking about this that here's this guy, this wealthy guy who has a surplus in the middle of mostly poor people that he could have probably changed the lives of everyone around him. And it wouldn't cost him a dime. Think about that. He could have just taken the surplus and just given it to the poor, and it wouldn't have cost him a dime. He would have been no less wealthy, and yet he didn't. He was not thinking about taking care of anyone but himself. He wasn't thinking about his neighbor. He wasn't thinking about the guy down the street. If I I release this surplus, he'll be able to have more money in his pocket so he can take care of his family. He didn't think about anything but himself. He just was not thinking about that. He also didn't think that he was a steward. I showed you that. He sees himself as an owner. He doesn't see himself as being accountable to God for all the stuff that God has given him. So in fact, almost in this, this case, he's a practical atheist. God has no place in this man's thinking about what his, he should be doing with his money. He doesn't think about God's mission. In other words, if you look at the Old Testament, there are basically two, two places where, where people who believe in God are, are encouraged and mandated to give. One is to God's mission and the other is to the the poor and the needy, right? And the the Old Testament would have been to the temple for the priests so that the the law could go out so that people could be attracted to to what they would have known as the gospel. In other words, in our case, it's the local church. Whether you give here or someplace else, that's one of the primary places God expects us to be thinking about when we give. This man didn't think about God's mission and he certainly didn't think about the people. And the last thing he didn't think about, he didn't think about his mortality, that might have been the most stupid thing. In other words, he and I've seen this before. He just was going about his life as if he was going to live forever. He was planning his life as if he would live forever. And should you plan? Should you constantly live in fear of death? Absolutely not. On the other hand, should you constantly live as if you're never going to die? That might be even worse. Because this man just finally—he's finally set. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. I've got not a problem in the world until he hears someone say, "Fool." He's a fool. He might be the best businessman who ever lived on one hand, but from God's perspective, he is a fool because he doesn't understand the way things really work. Remember when Jesus talked about persecution and hell? He basically was saying, you need to take a long-term view of these things because someday you will have to stand before God. Same thing is happening here. This man didn't have any thought in the world that one day God would come and call him to account for the way he had used all of his stuff, and now that day is here. And it, there's just so much irony in the way this plays out. God says to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the thing you have promised, whose will they be? The language used there is the language of, of a banker who is basically taking back a mortgage or something. In, in other words, God comes to, to Mr. Barnes, and he's the repo man. He says, Mr. Barnes, guess what? Tonight you're getting repoed. Tonight your soul is demanded of you. It's the exact same banking language that they would have used. He says, tonight your soul is demanded of you. And then he asks a question that is just full of irony. He says, now, all that stuff that you've gathered, whose will it be? Because it ain't going to do you a dang bit of good with me. It doesn't earn you any place with me. It doesn't help. I could care less if you're rich or poor. Now all the stuff that you've spent your life gathering, whose will it be? Ask yourself that question. How much time do you spend thinking about that? How much time do you spend planning on, on making sure you're comfortable? And I know some people would say, well, I, okay, if my life is demanded, I may, at least I, my kids will be set up. Really? Really? I mean, when you, th- when you start reading the Bible and you think about how much money should I leave to my heirs, you know, so, so maybe that's a way around it. God might demand my soul, but at least I'll take my money and, and my kids will be set up. So you're going to set your kids up with the, maybe the greatest danger to anyone's faith. Might not be the smartest thing. In fact, what, I read a story a while back about uh, Warren Buffett. Remember, Warren Buffett, he goes back and forth between being the richest man in the country and not worth about $40 billion or so, I think. And the story he basically called his son into his office one day and says son i'm giving you your whole inheritance right now and he gave him one share of berkshire hathaway stock worth about ninety thousand dollars kid's like yeah you got like 40 billion dude he said that's it i don't want to you need to figure things out for yourself and the son the article i read about by, by the son the son was glad ultimately Because he actually had to figure out his priorities in life rather than just have to just skate on it. And, you know, the Bible, Solomon also says, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to make all this money and all this wealth. And after I die, who knows whether my heirs will be wise or foolish with it. I'm not telling you don't take care of your kids. But I'm telling you there might be bigger fish to fry. There might be bigger things to think about than just making sure I'm taken care of and comfortable and my kids are set. There's another priority here, and it's the priority of this thing called the gospel. Notice how Jesus sort of ties in, he, he applies it actually. He said in verse twenty one, he says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus' application basically begs this question what does it mean to be rich toward God? Notice he doesn't say the one who gathers who who he, he doesn't say so is one who lays up treasure for himself, period. Apparently, laying up treasure for yourself is okay, but are you laying up treasure and being rich toward God? Are you, are you uh, gathering treasure, but are, uh, what does it mean to be rich toward God? And the simplest answer that I could think of is to be concerned about that which God is concerned about. It's to give toward those things that God is concerned about, which primarily are His mission, and his people, or his mission, and those people he cares about, which in the Bible, over and over again, it says the poor and the widow and the downcast. And so, when you look at your your finances, the way you handle your stuff, is that a priority? Is it the mission of God's people he, through through His church? Whether again, whether you give money here or you give it to to, to some ministry, is are you becoming more and more generous? Because to the extent you're becoming more and more generous is the extent to which you're becoming rich toward God and for taking care of the poor. Is your life geared around? Do you you even think of that? I'm always amazed, but when I look, think of our country and I read statistics about how many poor people there are and how many people go to bed hungry at night. And the reason I'm amazed is not because the United States is so wealthy, but because Christians are so wealthy. Christians are wealthier now than they have ever been in the history of the world and yet the average Christian gives about 4% of their income. And people go to bed hungry every night. That's a wake-up call. I don't know if it is for you. It's a wake-up call for me to say, Tommy, do you have dragon sickness or not? What are your priorities here? Are you being rich toward God or are you not being rich toward God? Here's something I want you to think about when you, when you leave today. Maybe talk to your spouse about it. You know, if, you, if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to basically take some time and before you spend another minute thinking about your retirement, think about where you are with God. Think about where you are with regard to your priorities. If you are a Christian, I would ask you to do the same thing. Ask yourself, of course, where am I with regard to the, my priorities about how I use my stuff, about how I gather stuff, about how I do all of these kinds of things? Unless you think that God would ask you to do something that he hasn't done himself, the gospel of Jesus basically is one great big picture of someone who gives on behalf of God's mission and God's people over and over. In fact, let me read you what Paul says about Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 he says for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that by you his poverty might so that you by his poverty might become rich if you want to know what it means to be rich toward God look to the cross of Christ because at the cross of Jesus what you see is someone who gave every single thing that he had Toward what God thought was important and what God thought was important was saving you from your sins What God thought was important was actually not just saving you but but making you as wealthy as Christ So Christ becomes completely and utterly poor on the cross and you and I become completely and utterly rich Ask yourself. Do I actually believe that and if I believe it is how is it affecting my life? Think about that. Let me pray for us father. I pray that you would um as we we talk about uh giving here we talk about um, covetousness what to do with our possessions i pray that you would instead of making us um, feel guilty instead of a, us feeling sort of convicted which i guess m- maybe we need that i pray that you would you would make us excited as well when we look at how much you've given us and how by our giving we could change the lives of people around us we literally could do that in kent in the surrounding communities. i pray that you would give us a heart for that as a church and as individuals in christ's name we pray these things amen and amen.